You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm Simon. Hello, I'm Mark. You didn't give enough pause. He's your editor. Oh, yeah, but it was like instant. <laughs> oh, was it? Okay, sorry. Oh, the jet, the jet. Time is yeah, money, you know what That, is, that was my thought. My thoughts ticking over thinking, oh, hell, it's alphabetical and I'm first. I better get in. And you just dashed straight at it. Wow, well, I didn't know what time had passed between. I was going to do something before we introduced ourselves. Do you want to do it again then? Hello, me and my family are huge fans of your podcast. We love it, never miss one. We just wondered if we could get a mention on your podcast from Lee Beat and the Beat family listening from Birmingham, UK. Oh, bless them. Yeah. It makes it makes it feel like we're almost a professional thing. <laughs> almost. <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? Well, mm. God bless you for listening. Um, yeah. Yeah, thank you. All right, and I'm JR. Um, okay, <laughs> that's all, that's we're so sorry. In brackets. We can mm. only apologise, and um, well, well, these two are apologising, yeah. and I'm apologising on their behalf. Um, we're not here to do a proper full podcast, although we've got six sides of A4 in front of us, so chances are we will, because we've not done this for about six weeks. <laughs> so we've got a lot of catching up to do. So basically, this is going to be a bit of a catch up. But there's one main reason why we're here, and one other reason why we're here, and the main reason is something that's going to be coming up later in the episode that's already turned up in a couple of Easter eggs over the last few episodes. This is starting to sound like a Stephen Moffat story. Yes. But the other thing is Mark. Hello. Tell everybody why you're here. Well, uh, I'm pretty sure I was part of the Blue Box podcast team. Okay, tell everybody why you've turned up this week. And speak up. Why did you make the effort this week? <laughs> Cheers, Simon. <laughs> uh, it's your floor. So, oh, thank you, Joe. Um, so, my wife has decided to uh, try and do something for a charity which is quite close to our hearts, and um, it revolves around getting authors to um, very kindly donate signed books for her to auction off uh, to raise funds for a charity. It's called uh, Hope for HH UK and it helps people and families affected by a condition called hypothalamic hamartomas um, and it's um, a... Oh, sorry, I'm going to have to stop for a minute. It's alright, don't worry. Um, and the latest uh, book that, or two books that are up for auction, uh, have a Doctor Who connection. So uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to let as many people know about it as possible. Um, Paul Cornell, he of Doctor Who fame, has very kindly uh, donated a graphic novel called This Damned Band. And, called uh, what? This Damned Band. Oh, is it like a music thing? It is. It's a rock group. Um, who kind of like to make out that they're devil worshippers and then inadvertently 
become... Our devil version. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you too, uh, then, yeah? Yeah, well, yeah, could be. It sounds uh, like Deathgasm, the film I reviewed uh, ages ago. Oh, really? Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and also um, issue one of his third Doctor, New Adventures, both signed by Paul himself. Thank you very much, Paul. If you happen to be listening, I'm sure you always listen to every episode. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it's something that uh, my wife is trying to do to raise a bit of money for that charity. Um, the auctions go up on a Facebook page. So if you go, just go onto Facebook and look up um, book auctions for Hope for HH UK. It should come up somewhere in your search. Um, they tend to go live on a Thursday evening and run for a week. And then whoever's put in the highest bid bags the swag. Um, we'll try and time it so that it coincides with this episode going out. And uh, that ends this public service announcement. No, it doesn't. People would need to know where on Facebook they're going to go and find it. You just said. Have you? I didn't. You said the name of the page. Yeah. Say it again then. It's Book Auctions for Hope for HH UK. Oh, is that? All right. Okay. That's cause... the name of the page. All right. I don't know why I thought it was a different name on the page. Mm. <clears throat> Probably because when you bring it up, it gives you a shortened version or something. Yeah. That's the reason Mark's here. <clears throat> and what kind of books does she usually... Uh, it's been quite a wide variety. There's been... Um, well, we had horror and um, crime novels. You, you name it. It's run the whole gamut. So it's quite a... A nice eclectic mix, also a variety of well-known authors and up-and-coming authors as well. So it's um, helping sort of shed light on uh, new talent coming through as well. And what kind of price do they usually go for? It varies. It's all down to uh, how much people are prepared to, to donate. So I think the most that's gone so far has been about £60. Right, £60. People listening to this podcast, that is a... Piss poor, pitiful target, <laughs> and we are expecting you to outdo that to the power of at least three. So, fists so that's in JR pockets. putting forward his uh, his bid early. That's good. Thank you, JR. <laughs> Very kind. Fists in pockets and raise some money for this charity. <clears throat> right, we've got fifteen pages worth of emails. We've got, because um, we've not done this for six weeks, I've got about half a dozen film reviews and audio reviews to do. And also, we've got Simon's thing. I reckon we do Simon's thing now. Okay. So, Simon, the Easter eggs we had at the end of two podcasts a fortnight ago mm. were what? They were uh, a kind of an impromptu uh, visit to Hooverville <clears throat> in Derby. When you uh, say impromptu... Well, I actually, no. I, no, I say impromptu because I'd talked about going for a long time and then bought a ticket at the last minute. It was one of those where I was... I wasn't wavering. I wanted to go and I was kind of like... <clears throat> What's Hooverville? Hooverville is a Doctor Who gathering. Um, convention. Convention, yeah. Yeah, but well, I say that, but it did feel like a gathering. It was more... But I suppose that was my personal experience because most of... My time was spent sort of hanging around with people who I'd spoken to online. and, and You were in together. the podcast room. I was in the podcast room for a good... Yeah, that wasn't something I was expecting. That was that was nice. That's the thing they do. So tell me, what is the podcast room? The podcast room is 
you've basically got the room where they would get the guests up on the stage to do a question and answer session and they do some straightforward you know ones with, well they do with a hosts. panel on the stage right exactly yeah there's a panel there and then they do a panel in the podcast room yes and then they also do private podcasts they right? do yeah yeah so there's three sessions there's a normal panel there's a podcast room where any podcast you want to go there and all do a almost like a, a group podcast a group podcast can go in and listen to the panel and then you get the individual guests who come along and speak to you <clears> so um yeah, so that's that. Was... And this is why we've not made it feature material because other podcasts will be carrying this too. And yes. we didn't want to make something the whole of an episode of the Blue Box podcast, given that people listening to the Blue Box podcast might have heard the whole thing somewhere else already. Yeah. So instead, what we've done is we've got seven recordings, which I've got written down. I've got so many pieces of paper, though. I've got to find it. I should have found it before I said this. <laughs> I tell you what, it's a bit like it's a bit like those um, Dennis Potter things when they were on BBC One and Channel Four, isn't it? Yes, it, that's exactly what it's like. It is <laughs> so much like that, in fact. And uh, on those occasions as well, they debut on Channel Four and then move to BBC One. Is that mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So they'd start with a little podcast and then move to the big podcast, and that's why we're coming at these things slightly later than everybody else. Yeah. Is that right? Wow. <coughs> oh, <laughs> okay. So you came home yeah. with seven recordings. I did, didn't I? <laughs> right, and because most of these are going to turn up as Easter eggs, I'm going to go through and say what they all are now. Okay. So that people who are listening to one of our Easter eggs and thinking, what the hell is this? will not know to go to this podcast to find out what it was. But if they do, and they can find out exactly where in the podcast, about 10 minutes, then they'll be able to find out what they were listening to on a different podcast that they've completely forgotten about. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will become clear who's talking. Mm. Yeah, uh, it should do, but name. it doesn't always. Okay, you've got three three main panels, mm -hmm. one of which featured Michael Jaston, yeah. who was the Veilyard in yeah. season 23, Toby Haydoke, who was the racist barman in An Adventure in Space and Time. Yeah, and incidentally, he was wearing exactly the same socks and shoes as me that day. Yeah. Green socks and uh, kind of burgundy Crocs. red... Burgundy red Crocs. Green <laughs> socks <laughs> and burgundy red Crocs. <laughs> so what's that? Did they say that? Have you just no, JR was just trying to... Uh... Bastard. Um, <laughs> green socks and burgundy red Converse. And John Davis, I don't know who he is. Yeah, he's... No idea. <clears throat> no. These three people have actually already appeared on one of our episodes because mm. that was the first one I put out as an Easter egg. Okay. That was on episode 226, More Friends from Down Under. Also, on the main panels, you've got one featuring Nicholas Briggs from Big Finish, Katie Manning, and Richard Bicknell, <laughs> who's sort of a Doctor Who brain box. Yeah, yeah, he's written for Dot Two magazine mm, and, and does DVD com, um, subtitles and all sorts of things like that. He says a nice little bit about that. He's been on, yeah, he's did the um, the Sensorites feature about the author of Sensorites as well, if I remember. Am right. I imagining it, or is he also involved in Nothing at the End of the Lane as well? He's not just involved in it; he is it. Well, you are then. Yeah, he's the uh, he's like the Andrew Pixley of the slightly more visible world. It's an interesting one if it, when you listen to that one because that one I, I essentially sat down as the host because they came to me with the list and said, "Do you want to host one of these?" And I went, "Yeah, okay." I said, <laughs> "Which ones are free?" And I looked down a list of three and I thought, "Yeah, that would be the lively one." And then it's a bit like asking <clears> to look <throat> after the tiger. It's a shame I wasn't there because I'd have hosted this next one. 
Which one? <laughs> well, the third one is Sophie Aldred, yeah. Ace, Matthew Dale, yeah. who played um, Little Robin, John in yeah. Rob, Robert of Sherwood. Big John. Big John, Little John, whatever. He was the tall one. Yes. Yeah. And Eric Saywood. <clears throat> and then you've got four recordings from more close-up interviews which are usually single people, one of which is with Matthew Dale, mm-hmm. one of which is with Katie Manning, one of which was with Nicholas Briggs and Eric Sayward at the same time, and one of which was with Mike Tucker, and Michael Jaston walks in about halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> that also features an Easter egg already. That was on episode 227, Behind the Scenes at Regenerations. So, Simon, yeah. I'm going to ask you right now to choose two of these Mm. to go on the end of this episode, and the other three that remain will end up as Easter eggs at some point in the near future. Okay. Uh, what are we looking at? Yeah, I think the Eric Sayward. Let's get him in. Okay. Because I thought it was lovely, because I mean, I asked him a question that I, I wanted to talk to him as a writer, as opposed to this this kind of... You did? I did. Really? Yeah. Okay. I was trying to approach him in a slightly different way, and I thought people will find out when they listen to it. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Are we going to have both the ones with Eric Sayward on on this episode then? Yeah, and then we'll save uh, Briggs, Manning, and Bignall, Mm. and Casey Manning and Matthew Dale for future occasions. Okay, so at the end of this episode, you'll have the main panel with Nicholas, no, with Sophie Aldred, Eric Sayward, and Matthew Dale. Followed by the close-up panel with Nicholas Briggs and Eric Sayward. And they're both rather good. I've listened to them all, obviously. Right, reviews or emails? Emails. 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 God. Blimey. Where to begin? Pages and pages of this stuff. Draw a lot, do a few, Mm. and then draw a line. Yeah, I've I've got a pen so I can tick things as we go through. Right, we've done that. (laughs) (laughs) John Hull. Right, I I tell you what, we'll go through these. We'll only Mm -hmm. pull things out if we really feel the need to comment because there's just so much. But it's worth going through them because that's all we usually do and this is just a catch-up podcast. John Hull. He says, enjoyed the latest podcast, very funny. I can't even remember which one he's talking about now. He says, the Skype interview was great too and sounded fine. You are right about the caves of Androzani. It's too violent for my tastes, although I like it. And there are issues with telling the story visually in that season. Resurrection, you don't see the time corridor in that, like you don't see the spaceship in Caves of Androzani either, do you? That's always bugged me and made me confused when I was younger watching it. I concur with the way Planet of Fire doesn't look like two different places to me either. I was talking about the season 21 podcast. Ah, right, okay. When I mentioned the comparisons between fandoms thing, I was a bit influenced by an old sci-fi magazine that, possibly pointlessly, compared Star Wars to Star Trek, although it was a good fun article. A less informed and researched than yourselves Doctor Who podcast. He thinks we're researched <laughs> oh, and informed. <laughs> we just make it up, John, and try and sound like we know what we're talking about. <clears throat> that I used to listen to. The presenter used to always talk the latest series down as it's not scientific and more magical from the perspective of being a Star Trek fan. I can always see this being a problem for reviewing even-handedly. That time corridor in Resurrection, I always imagined it looked like it did on the TARDIS screen. It did look like a BBC computer animation. Mm. 
And I always thought it looked like the one in the Horns of Nyman, which was essentially the same thing. Yeah. Gerard Gray says... Except the Horns of Nyman was better. Well, it's... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I go with that. Yeah. Gerard Gray, hello everyone at the Blue Box Podcast. First of all, I would like to apologise to you, JR, for the stress I caused you while reading my season 21 comments. Oh, don't apologise, <laughs> it's fine. All I can say is my memory is probably clouded as I only watched these stories once many years ago. Perhaps I should revisit them. Gerard, no. <laughs> don't do it. After listening to your very enjoyable podcast, maybe it's better I don't. I really loved your Target books list. It brought back great memories of many happy reading hours. Anyway, that's all for now. Thanks to you all. I really enjoy the podcasts every week. Thank you. Miles Northcott says, Dear JR and the Blue Boxers, Really enjoyed the recent podcast detailing your recent trip to the Starburst Film Festival. Oh, that's the one where we sat in the car and talked about the service station. (laughs) (laughs) The best one. Yeah, that made me chuckle. You seem, he says, to have received an honour that most people can only dream about. I don't mean having a chat with legendary lost episode hunter Phil Morris or enjoying some time with prolific almost showrunner of Doctor Who, Toby Whithouse. No, I am referring to the fact that you bumped into Peter Cavanagh while at the weekend. I am quite overwhelmed with jealousy and regret now that I did not take the time to come up myself. I have really missed out. Was Peter available to sign autographs? Was it possible to have a selfie with him? (laughs) Peter is by far the wisest, funniest, most charming and dashingly handsome of men, and I can only imagine that you literally trembled with excitement in his presence. You lucky man. Yours with envy, Miles Northcott. I thought that was Sharak Jews for a minute. Did you really? Mm. P.S. Now that you've read this, you certainly won't be able to say he doesn't write in anymore. P.P.S. What just happened? He is very funny. I'd say Peter Peter Cavana. Peter or Miles? Peter Cavana. Dear JR and the Blue Box team, your last pod... I'm going to take a sip of this tea if anyone wants to just... Okay. (laughs) The girl from Ipanema. Is that because I've got purple nails? Well, I didn't want to bring it up, JR, but now you've uh, mentioned it. <clears throat> Mark did audition for the lift in Are You Being Served? Yeah. Seen that. He auditioned for the lift? Yeah. Is that like something to do with trousers? I'm just being weird. I'm sorry. Dear JR and the Blue Box team, your last podcast reviewing season 21 was massively entertaining. <laughs> And just plain massive at a running time of more than two hours and 40 yeah, minutes. the next 60 minutes, uh, how we laugh. I've forgotten how long it, it takes was. time to shovel shit. Oops. Beep. What? <laughs> I had the Olympic marathon beginning on the TV in the background after I started listening, and the 26.2 mile foot race finished well before the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is not at all a negative, as the discussion held one's interest throughout, much to the credit of the participants. I would think a, probably a marathon is probably less punishing than listening to that podcast as well. That was a tremendously good fun podcast. Possibly. Unless, <laughs> unless that is you're a member of the 42 Doomsday podcast. Ooh. Hi, guys. <sighs> Hi. Uh, uh, Rob moaned about me on uh, Twitter. Oh, okay. Oh, I saw something of that. <clears throat> anyway, back to the email. The shifts involved in the personalities of the 4th, 5th and 6th Doctors were a theme underlying your review of this season. 
It's really interesting how, as the series progressed, the next Doctor's basic character is a reaction or overcorrection to that of the last. Davison's Doctor seems to me to be incredibly bland, passive and nearly humourless, apparently as a purposeful contrast to manic, over-the-top aspects of Tom Baker, especially the jokey Doctor that appeared when Baker was left later on to his own devices. I didn't think the beige, inert aspects of his personality worked very well throughout much of Doctor No. 5's tenure. Stories that were the exception, in which the Fifth Doctor's detachment and inactivity are shaken off, such as Caves of Androzani or Snake Dance, seem to me to be the ones generally held in the highest esteem by fans. In turn, Colin Baker's Doctor, odd, overblown, operatic, and initially out of control, is the tin-eared John Nathan Turner's reaction to the bland Davison character. It's a bit like the wobbly overcorrection of your steering when you are first learning to ride a bike, and just as likely to lead to a crash. <clears throat> Similarly, Sylvester McCoy's Doctor seems a response to Colin Baker. What was created with Doctor No. 7 was a more likeable, less blustery and non-threatening cartoon-like character, serving as a lifeline tossed to the series that had been marred by the less attractive aspects of the Sixth Doctor, as best that lifesaver could be fashioned by the ham-handed JNT. The other interesting underlying theme in your podcast was how the era during which one begins watching and who one consequently considers as their Doctor influences the way these episodes are considered. So many of the emails summarising season 21 in that, in a positive and I think quite forgiving way, were prefaced with comments indicating that the writer was of a certain age that caused Davison to be their first Doctor. In contrast, for example... I think those who started seriously watching Doctor Who with Tom Baker or John Pertwee as their Doctor may generally be less charitable in evaluating some of these episodes, and I would count myself in this group. For me, standing squarely in the long shadow of Tom Baker, Davison's Doctor never seemed to have the gravitas needed to convincingly handle many of the issues presented in these stories. For others who grew up with Davison, however, his Doctor seems to hit just the right notes, especially at the end of his tenure. These early viewing influences seem to continue in evaluating Colin Baker. If he was your doctor, you may optimistically see all the positive parts of the trial. If not, you may view it as a disaster. Because of the initial lack of availability of the episodes where I live, it was a long time before I saw the McCoy-era stories. That distance in time from the airing of the stories of my Doctor and a more mature perspective generally probably allows me to be less biased and more positive in my appraisal of stories like Ghostlight, tales that dismayed many fans who viewed them at the time of broadcast. While I obviously knew the series had ended by the time I saw it, fans viewing it at the time of initial airing must have had the distressing sense that the series might be disastrously slipping into oblivion. Thanks again for the thought-provoking podcasts and for reading my emails. I particularly liked the awful American accent. <laughs> <clears throat> Your friend, Nicholas Knoll, Smithville, Missouri, USA. Well, thanks that's for the thought-provoking no, email. That's a great email. And that's why we read them out. I think it's possible to separate the two. I, I, I yeah. think there's a lot to like in Davison's Doctor, and he is my doctor, but I wouldn't say I'm, I wouldn't say I'm in the least bit biased. I think mm. I think he's a good actor. I just think he's a bit too young at the time he took it on. By his yeah. own admission. Yeah. I think he was miscast. Simple mm. as that. Mm. I think he's a great actor. I think he was miscast and he made for a disastrous doctor, really. I think <clears> he'd <throat> been ten years older. I think it would have 
worked a lot better and he would have had that bit of more... Do you want to see, think the stories would have worked better though with a different Doctor? Mm. No. It's hard to say, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? It's... Yeah, yeah. no. Frankly. Mm. Although some of them are great. Yeah. Well, two of them, maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Irwin from Australia. G'day. Hello, chaps. After listening to the Season 22 podcast from the Starburst event, I've come to the conclusion that Eric Sayward is the Morrissey of Doctor Who. Ooh. I base this on the way Morrissey is always accused of being miserable in his music, just as Eric is accused of being violent in his era of Doctor Who. Yet, in both cases, I think the accusations are a bit overdone. When you hear anecdotes that confirm vengeance on Varos and the violence in it were very much Philip Martin's idea, it pricks the notion that Saywood, as showrunner, was behind everything being a sub-video nasty. <clears throat> but I'm assuming... I don't. I think he's quite un- unapologetic about it. Yeah. About what they, what they were trying to do. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't think you blame Philip Martin mean, I... for the amount of death and destruction in Resurrection of I the Daleks. I think Eric Saywood knew what he wanted and... Got the people in to do the job. Yeah, if you ask him, he said, "Well, this—that's what we were trying to do." Yeah. As to whether it worked or not is another thing, mm. but I don't think he apologises for it. Back to Rob. Similarly, when the discussion of humour in Revelation of the Daleks came up, it also brought to mind the way in which I find Morrissey to be absolutely hilarious as a lyricist and even in interviews. Yet that seldom gets acknowledged. Of course. Sayward's inclination to make a more adult Doctor Who is there in the background, just as Morrissey does write material that can be taken as doer. But in both cases, I think they get a bit stereotyped and pigeonholed too easily. Am I a Morrissey fan? Yes, I am. Am I a Sayward fan? I would say yes. He was there for all of my Doctor, Peter Davison. (coughs) So it's hard to not get behind the man who was making the stories tick during that era. Even if I wasn't, however, I think I'd still make this comparison of two guys who will never satisfy everyone and who have their own way of doing things, but also cop a wee bit of unfair flack above and beyond what can be justifiably placed against them. All the best, Rob Irwin. Mm. <laughs> He's right about Morrissey there. Yeah, absolutely. Just imagine, though... No, I don't think he was. Just imagine the fifth Doctor as he was in Time Crash all the way through. Mm. Written that well. Yeah, yeah. Do you not think the um, the lyrics of the Queen is Dead quite funny? Just think of Morrissey as he was in Men Behaving Badly all the way through. <laughs> Brookside. Bob the Builder. Bob the Builder. No, no. <laughs> Sorry, it's only a take. <clears throat> Stephen Morrissey, can you fix it? Stephen Morrissey, no, you can't. <laughs> David Kitchen writes, <laughs> there's another one from Australia. What is it about Australian listeners? They're gluttons for punishment. Oh, no, but their numbers have gone down ever since Rob from 42 to Doomsday stopped listening. Oh, let it go, man. What's the matter with you? (laughs) David Kitchen says, Dear Blue Box team, thank you for presenting the Starburst Season 22 panel on your latest podcast. Sadly, this is exactly the sort of panel that we in Australia are unlikely to experience due to the financial cost of getting behind-the-camera talent out there. No, due to the financial cost of getting behind-the-camera talent out there. <laughs> I did spend a large part of the podcast wondering what a Peter Davison version of Vengeance on Varos would look like, though, and I still can't get my head around that concept. Mm. 
I did want to ask though, while I don't have the issues with Sayward's era that some others do, I've often thought that the biggest mark against him was his inability to recruit and retain a group of talented writers for the series in the way that someone like Andrew Cartmel did. However, hearing Eric's comments about J&T, should the blame for that lie more with the producer than the script editor? Thanks again, David, from the Doctor Who show. David Kitchen. That's right, yeah. Co-presenter with a certain Mr Robert Irwin. Oh, I like the idea of that. Mm. It's very good. <clears throat> um, should the blame for that lie more with JNT than Eric Sayward? Mm. Possibly, because JNT wouldn't let him have a lot of the writers he wanted. The bit that doesn't make sense about that theory is that who is it? Who's it said that you've got Eric, where he was experienced, and, and in some respects, an older writer who JNT had got hold of. And then there was this theory that he liked younger writers because then he had a certain element of more control. Well, not younger, just... Or inexperienced. <clears throat> yeah, less experienced. But that doesn't... But, but Eric Sayward wanted to bring in people like Bob Holmes and mm. uh, there's a lot of resistance from J&T. Which... J&T liked to be in control. Mm. And that's about as much as there is to it. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of the friction comes from because after five years of working with Eric Sayward... Eric Sayward's no longer as in... Ex- Sayward was brought in at the start out of radio, having done two radio plays mm. and nothing oh, see, else. so there was an inexperienced... Right, OK. Yeah. So Sayward came in having done nothing, really. Mm. Nothing of any particular substance and certainly nothing on the telly. And JNT basically has this script editor that he, he can push around... But by the time you get to season 22 and season 23, season 21 and season 22 are Eric Sayward all over. You look at season 20, that's J&T all over. Is it that situation you get where management start trying to make creative decisions? And that's where it tends to go wrong, isn't it? Mm. <clears throat> Mark, you stop scratching like that. Yeah, sorry about that. That's pretty much exactly me. what you've got. I think that's it for those. We had... I tell you what we also had though was we had the podcast about the one that you sprung on me. Mm. We got a lot of reaction <laughs> on that. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but we got a lot of reaction on that on Facebook, and I don't usually read the Facebook things out, but there was so much of it, and it was patently written to be read out. Yeah, that I think I'd better. It's rude not to. <clears throat> William Frame says, and this is all about when. Uh, this is basically the ding-dong <laughs> between Matt and I about what it means to be a yeah, fan. Yeah, I still haven't yeah. worked out whether Matt was serious or not. I, I was... feel like I aged about ten years listening to that. What Was Matt being kind of like a devil's advocate? Like, the... the... Mm. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't so know. I'll tell you what, though. So, this is ironic and completely coincidental. <laughs> about a week after that podcast went out, some, on, I was just on Gallifrey Base on the missing episodes oh, no, mega thread, no. page seven thousand nine hundred forty-six of installment twenty-seven or something. And somebody called Richard Smith just happens to mention while talking about something else. He says, "Blah blah blah." Over forty years after I became a proper fan with the purchase of Doctor Who in an exciting adventure with the Daleks, so he considered buying a book <laughs> the moment he became a proper fan as well. <laughs> I just thought that was ironic. <clears throat> William Frame says, How many hours did you spend trawling the internet to find somebody who came up with that same hypothesis? Missing episodes mega thread. Mm. Oh, Mark, I'm there already, aren't I? Oh. Life's too short to spend on Gallifrey Base. Why? 
Oh, so depressing. Well, if you look at the bits that make you depressed. Mm. William Frame says, does this... It's a really nice place full of really nice people and a few rotten apples. Mm. Like the planet we live on is a really nice place filled with really nice people and a few rotten apples. <coughs> Trump. <coughs> yes. Me! <laughs> Did you just say me? May. Oh, Theresa May. Yeah. She's not Donald Trump. She's pretty hideous, but she's not Donald Trump. <laughs> I was thinking that, you know, was JNT the Theresa May of his type? Because he was kind of reacting, like you say. You had the so-called bland doctor with Peter Dawson. So he goes completely the other extreme. So that's what she's doing. She's going completely the other extreme. She's going to get rid of the... She's going to get rid of the idea of a working underclass by basically getting rid of the working class. Starve them out. That's what she's going to do. Make them homeless, starve them out, let them die. William Frame says, and this is the third time I've attempted to start this. William Frame says, does this mean my recurring childhood nightmare based on the Daleks bursting through that wall in Destiny makes me a writer of fan fiction? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I find I can no longer listen to your opening, closing music without, and it's changed again now, so <laughs> without singing Prog to Who, Prog to Who. No, of course it's Prog to Who, Prog to Who. No, yeah. okay. <clears throat> over and over in I my head, he says. <laughs> I thought I'd put that one in first because it was a bit of a light one. Christine Grip says, I expected this podcast to be about the bad behaviour of certain fans, the wrong kind of entitlement, personal attacks on actors or writers, things like that. Not about what makes a fan. Still rather fun to listen to. I especially enjoyed the gender argument at the beginning. I suppose being the exception to a certain generalisation is always fun. No targets, I'm afraid, though, in the 1970s, though I've compensated for that later on. But I certainly made my own TARDIS and played at it being bigger on the inside. Yeah. At least with a lot of imagination, you could consider a big cardboard boxy thing a TARDIS. And talking about collections, ha ha ha, and Star Wars, never played with the Star Wars figures, but I've got an enormous collection of EU books, no longer canon. What's EU? Extended, Extended Universe. universe yeah. <clears throat> I hate football, though. And inspiration? Usually things like a myth or legend, and I would like to deepen out the characters taking part in it. A fascinating... She's from the country of total football. Okay. Do you want to explain what that means for people who don't know? Um, the Dutch national team, when they were at their absolute peak, um, played what was described as total football. And Christine Grit, therefore, is from a country called Dutch. The Netherlands. <laughs> Inspiration, usually things like a myth or... Pardon? Sorry, on. His, his accent, just the Netherlands, an Irish accent. I know, I, I was yeah. going to pass over the it. Netherlands. He's not here very often. Don't give him a reason not to come back. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe do. Hello, Christine, by the way. Usually, Hi. inspiration, she says, usually things like a myth or legend, and I would like to deepen out the characters taking part in it. A fascinating historical figure who appeals to me and I look up to his or her life, or even seeing some insect buzzing in the window and thinking, what if? What if that insect was an historical figure from a myth or legend? Uh, Rob Irwin says, but more seriously, do I answer the... Oh, God. I'm so sorry, Rob. <clears throat> Is that a no, though? Please don't take it personally. 
but more seriously, to answer the request for feedback, I could see both sides of the argument in the first half, but tended to side with JR over Matt, largely because while a structured and academic idea of fandom may exist, and undoubtedly people misuse the term fan when they simply mean that they like watching a show, I side more with the idea that on an individual basis, it's hard to argue with someone's own feelings. If they buy the Target novels, for example, with the mindset, I bloody love this show, I want to read more, I want to make a collection of these books more so than I need something to read, I like Doctor Who so I'll read this book, then clearly you can have two people who are only reading the Target novels, but their motivations are so different, and one clearly identifies as a fan, and their goal to not only read the novel, but make a collection of them, is absolutely fan behaviour to my mind. So again, I can see where Matt is coming from, and I understand the argument, but I think situations can really differ when we get down to an individual, case-by-case sort of scenario. I have very clear memories of looking at books in the past and thinking both I want to read these and I want to make a collection simultaneously. For others, it might happen by accident. But even now, I might like something, see a series of books, and be making the determination that collecting those books is as important as reading them. Definitely fanish. David Kitchen says, I've just finished read... No. Okay. Is he Flemish? Oh, yes, but do you know what? You will be in a minute. (laughs) There, very Flemish now. David Kitchen says, I've just finished the discussion between JR and Matt on on what defines a fan. One of those podcasts where I'm shouting at the car speakers wanting to make my point. So clearly an engaging discussion. Just so you know, David, you can't even get your... When you're sat here, sometimes you can't get the word. When you're sitting here. Yeah. Mm. Don't start him off again. Well, David and Rob (laughs) would be siding with Matt, because Matt is a contributor to the Doctor Who show. So, you know, just saying, Mm. lads. Well, David says, I certainly agree with Matt that fan should mean more than just a regular viewer who likes the show, but I agree with JR that Matt was seeking to define that next level too strictly. Even amongst viewers, there's casual viewer... Oh, where's the rest of this email? No. Oh, hello. (laughs) Cut off his prime. (laughs) There it is. My God, I've got so many pieces of blood and paper. (laughs) Even amongst viewers, there's casual viewer, regular viewer, and I'll catch up on any missed episodes viewers, whether that be by setting the VCR to record it, finding it on iPlayer, etc., which makes things more complicated, as many of those might say they're a Doctor Who fan if asked. But to me, a fan means a higher level of engagement than just watching. Buying merchandise, joining forums, following actors or production teams on Twitter perhaps, writing about the show. But of course, that would make me a fan of a couple of dozen shows, which arguably I am. But my level of fan involvement for something like Doctor Who... Complete set of DVDs, target novels and virgin books, appear on podcasts, have run a fan club, writing for fanzines, etc. Compared to a show I've perhaps just bought a couple of DVDs and follow some people on Twitter for, it's very different. I've often thought about this in terms of music. (coughs) Where's the line between liking a band and being a fan of a band? The definition I came up with is that you're a fan if you can enjoy and find good in everything a band produces, not just a selection of songs you like. Perhaps that translates to TV. I can watch and enjoy even a bad episode of Doctor Who, in the classic series anyway, or The West Wing, or Blake Seven, or Rumpole. 
and we'll rewatch whole seasons, good and bad. I'll do the same with Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, but not with the original series and VOY, a Voyager. Mm-hmm. I was expecting that to be an acronym, and all of a sudden it wasn't. <laughs> Is there such a thing as a bad episode of The West Wing? We'll come back to this. That would make me a fan of the first six seasons of Red Dwarf, but not the later seasons, so yeah. am I still a Red Dwarf fan? I don't know, but the latest season has really picked up in quality. We'll come back. Okay. Finally, he says, I don't know whether you'll touch on it later in the podcast, but certainly in Australia for a long time, we had the concept of a BNF, big name fan, someone who's, oh, because he wrote this while he was still halfway through listening to it, someone whose whole reputation was defined by their, by their high level involvement in fandom, often in a semi-professional way. Writing for Doctor Who magazine or Dreamwatch, being a missing episode hunter, knowing people, etc. And that's another level again. Well, we sort of came back to that when we talked about what we did. Mm. Um, He says, and Mark screwed his nose up at this. He says, the definition I came up with is that you're a fan if you can enjoy and find good in everything a band produces, not just a selection of songs you like. Right, I would say... If you liked, I'm going to put this into terms of blur. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you like the album Park Life, yeah, but you don't like Modern Life is Rubbish, okay, and you don't like uh, The Great Escape, mm. and you don't like any of the other albums, mm. that doesn't make you a fan of Blur. That makes you a fan of Park Life. Yes, yeah. If you're a fan of Blur, you might think the album Modern Life is Rubbish is rubbish. Mm. But in listening to that, you'll hear little bits of all the things you do like about the band. Mm. So there won't be a single song on that album, probably, yeah. that you can't listen to and get something out of. No, absolutely. I agree. <clears throat> and something like The West Wing mm. will essentially have the same effect. I, The first series is probably the best series of The West Wing. Maybe the second series. But even when you get to the eighth series, which is the furthest removed from how it started, it's almost a different series by the eighth series when they're Mm. on the campaign trail for a successor. Mm. When you get to the eighth series, it's not as similar to that first series as, say, The Great Escape is to um, Blur's original first Mm. album. Mm. Leisure. Leisure, that's the word. That's the one I was trying to think of. But... All the same elements are there. Mm. You've still got all the same characters. You've still got all the same characterization. You still have the same interplay. So even if you're watching essentially a different story, mm. you've still got all the elements that make up the thing you like. <coughs> so you're going to get something out of that. <coughs> I would say, actually, in response to David, Doctor Who's perhaps one place where that doesn't ring true. Because... It's such a flexible format that every time you've got a new production team, you've basically got a new series. Because mm, yeah. the elements do change. The only elements that stay the same are the TARDIS and the fact that it's time and space. But with a different Doctor, who has a different characterization and a different companion, mm. and a different set of writers, you actually do get a different series. Mm. To which I will add one thing. Come on then. <clears throat> I quite often hear people saying, oh, Caves of Androzani is the best Doctor Who story, and season seven is the best Doctor Who season. Why can't the rest of Doctor Who be like that? And I've got to say, 
listening to certain podcasts, reading certain people on forums, I actually think there are people who think of themselves as Doctor Who fans who like probably less than a quarter of the series. Mm-hmm. They're not Doctor Who fans. They're fans of season seven and the Caves of Androzani. And the fact that they want the rest of Doctor Who to be like that yeah. doesn't make them a Doctor Who fan. It makes them a fan of those particular bits of Doctor Who. Yeah, because we're a fan of the format. <clears throat> not necessarily a fan of the format, but a fan of the way the format was treated mm. during those periods. I was going to go back to the music thing. It's a band like The Damned, where they've been through so many band members and so mm. many configurations that... So if you listen to Phantasmagoria, that is not the same band it as not. started not. out. I love that album, but yes. Simon, completely continuing different. the music uh, example, mm. you're, a, a, is it safe to say, a, a pretty big Depeche Mode fan? Mm. We were having a conversation the other day. We were. Yeah. What was it called again? Sounds of the Universe? Or? Sounds of the Universe. Yeah. 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 Terrible. Not, not a fan. No. It's got two good tracks on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's interesting because I would call myself a Depeche Mode fan mm. because I still listen to the new <coughs> albums. Yeah. But it's always in the hope that it's something... It's going to recap. <coughs> yeah. Every now and again you'll get a good song. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, the one thing about music, just mm. to interject, is that you will find that people go off the boil. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I used to listen to a lot of Erasure back in the day. Like the the Circus was an amazing album, and there was always the hope there'd be another Circus. And then I did literally go off the boil where I stopped buying their albums. So I would say I was never a fan. It might have been, a, and as you say, there was periods where I was a fan of a particular album, like the Circus. Um, but I was going to say, interesting, going to my love of the Pet Shop Boys. There was a time where they talked about retiring and getting somebody else to become the band. Yeah, that I'm going to say about almost like regenerating into a different thing. You know, then, that wouldn't be the Pet Shop Boys in the way I you knew them. I think they were going to go into the background and carry on writing the songs, but they were going to let someone else do the do oh, the legwork, okay. do a kind of Brian Wilson job. Yeah, exactly. Without so then, are you a pet, the pet Shop Boys? <laughs> make sure then, well, if they're still writing it, you'd still get nuances that you recognised. Mm. Anyway, there's one more email on this, shall I? And then Go on. I'll quickly whip through a few reviews, because I do like to review the things I've watched. But I'll try and make it brief as possible, and then we'll get on with um, Simon's panel recordings. Drew Walco says, Just listened to this episode and found it absolutely engrossing. I think there is no one-size-fits-all definition of what makes someone a fan. But I agree with Simon's observation that there's an essential sense of ownership of or at least emotional attachment to a property whereby that piece of culture becomes important to one's identity. That doesn't mean you have to wear the t-shirt for all to see or publish fan fiction online, but there's an acknowledgement to oneself that you care deeply enough about a film or a television series or a band that you frequently revisit these things, either by repeated viewing or listening, or just via idle thoughts. Also, a fan generally actively wishes for seeks out more output, to continue and deepen their love affair with their property and keep it fresh. Because that's what fandom really is, a love affair. Just as every personal relationship or marriage is different from one another, so is every fan's relationship with the cultural object of their affection. Unique. In some cases, it's love at first sight. In others, it's gradual attraction. But the end result is deep commitment. Now, on the hot topic of Batman... Absolutely, Batman Forever is the best of the 80s, 90s Batman films. It's the only one that gets the character and world right for those of us who have our ideal conception of Batman 
as equal parts Sherlock Holmes, James Bond and Zorro. Yeah, well, I agree I, with him on that. I agree, actually. <laughs> oh, it's a good I job just, Matt's not here because he disagrees. I'm I'm going to see the um I'm going to the premiere of the new Batman animation, you know, the Return of Oh, the, the Adam West one. Yeah. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Because I love it because it's yeah. fun. Nah, that's good. Right, I hope that's out of that paper turning over on too noisy. Like somebody turning around to you know, I was thinking about I think Matt was playing the was literally playing the academic for that conversation. But he wasn't there was no indication that he wasn't serious. But it's like somebody saying to you, when did you when when exactly did you start being boyfriend and girlfriend? Mm. And you saying, well, think I, think it, now. I think it was Yeah. <laughs> so well, you made think, love before you first kissed. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah. I think it was going back to the message there on Facebook, Drew, I think, summed up um fandom in a far more concise way than JR and Matt managed in half an hour, 45 minutes of arguing. And that's the real reason why Mark doesn't turn up every week. <laughs> <clears throat> um, some audio reviews. The last two stories in the latest season of Fourth Doctor stories from Big Finish, which are The Pursuit of History and Casualties of Time, in which, both written by Nicholas Briggs and set during roughly season 17 time, with Lala Ward as the companion to Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> um, they were both fun. What they didn't do, because what you're basically trying to capture when you're doing season 17 is that sort of essential Douglas Adams thing. Yeah. But Douglas Adams is Douglas Adams. Yeah, how can you... Uh... So what they do is... What Nicholas Briggs has done is basically taken Douglas Adams' preoccupations mm-hmm. and written an entertaining story that deals with a lot of those preoccupations and does it in a slightly haphazard-seeming way, in the way that Douglas Adams' plotting often seemed haphazard, mm-hmm. but in but in a haphazard way that adds up. So it doesn't have the wit of Douglas Adams, but it has most of the... Um, things that Douglas Adams cared about will all be in that story. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was good. It was a good fun. Uh, it felt a bit like it was somehow stuck between season 17 and season 18 a mm-hmm. bit, just because <clears throat> just because it wasn't written by Douglas Adams. that's where Big Douglas Finish Adams, exists, though, really, isn't it? It's the gaps between the, the TV stories. Do you know what? So. I often find this with Big Finish. Or, um, no, maybe not necessarily Big Finish. Yeah, but I think with Big Finish, it's like, if they're set something during a particular period, mm. I often find the influence of the other periods around it coming to bear as well. I suppose that's inevitable. Yeah. Because they're not actually working during that period. No, exactly. So I mean, if you're working during 1976, mm. you can't help but be influenced by what's going on in the world around you. Yeah. But if you're doing the same thing in 2016 you're not actually being influenced by the same things in the world going on around you as were happening in 1976. So it's bound to... Also, you've got the foreknowledge of all the seasons that came after it and how much <clears> you try not to. Some of that's bound to seep through. Yeah, yeah. And influence and I think it does. Ways. But that probably comes up with a more interesting end product. I think it definitely should be a hybrid of mm. what you expect think... from that era, but with a... With but with the that... knowledge of hindsight. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But um, I think if they put out audio plays that literally just aped what was going on in certain television mm. stories, 
eventually that would get rather dull. Oh, so yeah, it's better that they don't. I don't think that's their intention at all. Um, I also listened to the second series of the Philip Hinchcliffe Presents, which oh, yeah. is... And this was just one story, six episodes long, mm-hmm. like an old six-parter, which is a story that Philip Hinchcliffe was kind of storylined and that Mark Platt has turned into a script. Mm-hmm. And it's basically Romeo and Juliet in outer space <laughs> with all sorts of... There were all sorts of things going on in that story that were like little bits out of Philip Hinchcliffe's stories, mm-hmm. but the overriding impression I took from it was that this was Philip Hinchcliffe unfettered by Robert Holmes. Right. Because I just got the impression that Philip Hinchcliffe was more of a romantic, whereas Robert Holmes was more of a cynic. Mm. <clears throat> and so seasons 13 and 14 have got the romanticism of, say, the Victorian age, with the cynicism of Robert Holmes, where it's all prostitutes and midnight murders. But this is Philip Hinchcliffe without that level of cynicism. And because it's Mark Platt who's writing it, and Mark Platt obviously did Ghostlight, right? Yeah. And Lungbarrow. Mm-hmm. So Mark Platt shares with Robert Holmes um, a fascination with certain historical periods, maybe, and also a fascination with the metatextual side of Doctor mm-hmm. Who. So what... But, and this is crucial, what Mark Platt didn't, didn't have is that cynicism of Robert Holmes. So what you've got is Mark Platt writing with Philip Hinchcliffe so that they're taking all the things that the sort of season 13 and 14 were influenced by. So you have the same sorts of influences, but you don't have that mordancy that Robert Holmes brought to it. So it's kind of a slightly romanticised version of season 13 and 14. And actually, what it really sounds like to me is what season 15 would have been had Philip Hinchcliffe been there. Mm. But crucially, not Robert Holmes. Imagine if Philip Hinchcliffe had had Graham Williams come in as a replacement for Holmes rather than Hinchcliffe. Mm, would have been an interesting dynamic. So, so slightly <clears throat> ungrounded then? Yeah, slightly unbound, I would say so. Mm. The other audio I've listened to recently was the last part of Spring Hill Jack. But since we talked about that for an hour and a half last week, <laughs> I don't feel the need to say anything other than I absolutely adored it. And I'll move on to some films. I was, can I just say briefly, it's on, interesting yeah. that 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 idea of the two, you know, Philip, Philip Hinchcliffe and uh, Robert Holmes working together, where you get those two dynamics playing off each other. Those latest <clears throat> Red Dwarf episodes, it's really interesting. Obviously, you've got the situation where Rob Grant, it was Rob Grant and Doug Naylor working together, hence Grant Naylor. Yeah. And then when it went over, Rob Grant left because I think he, I may be wrong, but I think he felt that there was only, he felt that well, this happened in the West Wing as well. Yeah, where we felt there couldn't be, there wasn't much more (coughs) he could do with it, or he just didn't feel like writing anymore. So Doug Nellis carried on with Rob Grant's blessing, but something happened, and there was certainly on the comedy side of it, it it lost, it lost that little magic something. Mm. It just feels like it's got it back. You agree, Doug? He's lost his little magic. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, but this latest series, they seem to have got the balance right. In as much as up until now, after series six, as somebody pointed out in the letters, um, there seem to be far more concentration on plot and on the sci-fi elements of Red Dwarf. And you think to yourself, well, actually, the sci-fi elements are there as a vehicle to get the comedy situations. But they're not necessarily. It's not. Well, yeah, no, it's fair comment. Um, 
it became kind of obsessed with oh this this isn't this clever this has happened and the ship's been rebuilt and this has happened and everyone's suddenly alive again on red dwarf and all this sort of thing and all these clever things were happening but you kind of thought do you care because the people you care about are those main characters yeah. and how they interplay with each other and what seems to have happened in this late series of is suddenly all of a sudden something's clicked again and all of a sudden the most important thing is four people in a room or four mm. characters in a room tearing strips off each other but I think it but, goes back to the conversation around sounds before like about season 19 about being a fan <laughs> it's like red dwarf started when i was at secondary school yeah and i quite enjoyed it and i watched that maybe the first three series yeah and i felt after that it started to repeat itself and do the same Absolutely, thing over and over yeah. again and i think that's where and it was playing to the audience would stick with it yes Whereas I kind of got off at that point and have not gone back to them. No, no. see, I thought it started to repeat itself about ten minutes into the first episode. <laughs> really, <laughs> yeah. I love those first two seasons mm. where it's the basic setup of him being, you know, lost millions of years and all the other all mm. the other things. And the books are great as well. Yeah. Rob Grant's books are mm. definitely good. Um, right, let's move on from Red Dwarf. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. No, I'm just saying the two writers, you can see how that relationship worked where one writer was pulling it one way and one another and somewhere between the two the thing was working. Well, Aaron Sorkin left after four series of The West Wing, but obviously being American telly, they've got like a writer's room and a whole collection of executive producers who are also the writers who look after it. And when Aaron Sorkin left, basically they just stepped up. Hmm. So they just, it was like the ship carried on without the captain, but the entire rest of the crew. Mm. Films. <clears throat> I watched a film called Holidays, which was an anthology. Kevin Smith's done one of the segments. Mm. All right. It's, the first one is, oh, I can't remember what order they do it in. I think it starts on Valentine's Day and finishes on New Year's Eve. Basically, they've picked eight dates out of a calendar mm. and done a short film for each, about 10 minutes long for each. And and obviously they're all horror films, and because they're short stories, they're twisting the tail type horror stories. And mm-hmm. um, some of them were re- they're all really well made. Some of them are really good. Some of the endings are a little bit weak. The weird thing is because of the way they've chosen it, and they've given it to eight different filmmakers to do. So your first two stories are both set in a school. Two of your first three stories are about pregnancies, and. Um, Five of the first five stories are about children. And you're starting to think, okay, is that what this film's about? School and children and pregnancy. And then Kevin Smith comes on and does something about prostitutes. <laughs> and then the last so, two... crowbar um, in there. Yeah, it's... Actually, the Kevin Smith one is the weak link, okay. to be perfectly mm. frank. I'm not a Kevin Smith fan anyway, so maybe that's just my perspective. But I think it's the weak link, because I think all the other segments are strong... And hold true, whereas his is just all the others are horror stories with either a supernatural or psychological element, but his is just a torture porn short story, mm. Mm. and that just felt a bit crude by comparison with the rest of them. Mm. The, and the last two segments again after that are good. It's a good film. It's not. It's a bit disjointed because of the. Because so it's not the, like a portmanteau where you've <clears> got the. There's no linking. No, it's just... There's nothing to link them apart from the fact that they're all set on certain dates throughout the year. So it would have been better off as a TV series? Well, they're only 10 minutes long. Okay. 
And you wouldn't have got the people to make it if it was for TV. Mm. Mm. Um, oh, I watched a film called Consumption, which was a it was a Kickstarter film. It, it was one of those things where the guy who wanted the money for the Kickstarter was obviously getting the money because he'd had a good idea. But then once he'd got the money, it was never enough to make that idea really work. And he didn't have enough other ideas to... You know, if you don't have a lot of money, you need a lot of good ideas. And you need really strong script and really strong characterization, And it suffered from not... So, it had a good idea at the heart of it, but it just didn't work. Mm. <clears throat> the Windmill Massacre, Dutch film, but in English, um, that was very well made. Um, it's a bit like Chainsaw Massacre. <clears throat> no. In fact, it's not actually called The Windmill Massacre, it's called The Windmill, but they added Massacre on the end for the British audience for some reason. No, it's um, Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians, done as a slasher, set in a windmill. Nice. It's it's very well made, very competently made by somebody you can tell is probably going to go on and make better films. The one issue with it, I'd say, maybe this is partly because he's Dutch and writing in English. So maybe some of his ideas don't really quite come through. But the reason these eight people are there, like in Ten Little Indians, is because of things that have, that have happened in the past. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... <clears throat> and so he tries to make it a film about the personalities, but doesn't really get deep enough into the personalities to make it about the personalities. Mm. <clears throat> so Is it... the murderer called Windy Mauler? <laughs> oh, 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 oh. No, actually, again, it's one with a really strong central idea. Mm. But, but because you're not sold on the personalities of the people involved, you're not as engaged with the idea as you could be. But it's tremendous fun, and it's one of those films where it's very gory. Yeah. They changed the, I, I understand why they changed the name, but no, it wasn't the right decision, was it? The windmill sounds far more interesting. Yeah, but it probably sounds more interesting than the film really is. Okay. Mm. <laughs> so the windmill massacre sums it up perfectly. Okay. Um, I watched a film called Viral, which is a teen take on the apocalypse. Um, set in a high school in America in a small town in the middle of the California desert and oh, Mark's got his eyes screwed up again no I'm just wondering where this is going <clears throat> how do you mean? no go on, go on well there's two sisters at this high school and the town contracts this virus that's spreading around the world and all of a sudden people are dying all around them and so you've got two girls faced with the end of the world but unfortunately, because it's fairly low budget, even though, again, it's really competently made, really well made, and the first hour is very good. The first half an hour is the setup, mm. And when, when you've got a fairly short, fairly cheap film that spends half an hour on the setup and engages, you've actually got somebody who, um, you know, again, is probably going to go on to better things with a bigger budget and a lengthier script. But it's one of those... What, after the first sort of 45 minutes, it's two girls holed up in a house while the world goes to pot outside. Mm. And you kind of, and for once, you really could have done with another 45 minutes on the end. Because at the end of the film, it needs to be, and now they make a break for freedom, and you need to see their journey through the countryside to safety. But actually, basically, the film leaves with, finishes with them leaving the house. Right. So it's like the last 45 minutes of the film is missing. 
which is a bit sad. But up until that point, it's very good. Um, Maybe the director thought it was like a Butch, Butch Cassidy-type <clears throat> ending in their head. Oh, yeah, no, that's what it was. Mm. But what I'm saying is the bigger picture is it really needed the last 45 minutes mm. or an extra 45 minutes to function as a film, as a story in three acts. It's a story in two acts as it stands, <laughs> and the third act is missing. Right. Finally, Equals, which is... Um, oh, the girl from Twilight. Kristen Stewart. Oh, God. Yeah. And the boy from... I think she's a good actress. Really? Yeah. Okay, all right. You've probably never actually seen it. Twilight. It can happen to Natalie Portman. It can happen to her. <laughs> what happened to Natalie Portman? The Star Wars prequels. Natalie Portman was great before that, though, and everybody knew it. Yeah. Leon, I Leon. suppose. Yeah. Oh, not just Leon. She was in all sorts of good things before Star Wars came up. I don't know. She just... I don't know. The eyes. Is there really? anything going on? What with Natalie Portman? Mm. Seriously? Yeah, I'll show you some. T- give me some films to watch then. Okay. Black Swan. <clears throat> oh, that's post Star Wars. I know, but he's. Are you saying this is just her across the board? It may just board, be or? one of those things. I mean, yeah. I've yeah. seen her much for seeing what I've seen in Thor. Go to IMDb. Hmm. Look up 1999 and The Phantom Menace. Yeah. And then go up through the reams of things she did before and watch any single one of them. Yeah, but you know, sometimes an actress doesn't convince you at all and you think, is there anything going on? Really? Natalie Portman? Yeah. Okay. Okay. No, no, no. <laughs> I can only go by what I've watched. I can only go by that and that's not much. So yeah, I may be completely wrong. I probably am. Yeah. Okay, I am. Right, Good. equals. Good. <laughs> and also Nicholas Holt, the boy from the oh, first yeah. two series of... Um, what was it called on Channel 4? I was going to say uh, Scrubs. It wasn't called Scrubs. It was no, Skins. Skins. Skins, yeah. yeah. He's excellent. About a boy. Mm. Actually, the director of this said if either of those two had said no, he wouldn't have used the other mm. one either and he would have gone for an entirely different pairing. But yeah. they both said yes. It's <clears throat> it's set in Gattaca land, basically. Okay. Well, sort of. The 96% of the Earth's surface has been wiped out in a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And... There's just one tiny bit of the earth that's left that's habitable. Um, I can't remember what it's called. The containment or something. And there's just basically this city there with a few outlying towns. But what's happened is, in order to make sure a war never happens again, at some point in the past, the government has introduced drugs to inhibit people's emotions to the point that where we joined the film... People do not have emotions. But occasionally, people overcome the inhibitors and start to show signs of emotions. There are four stages of emotions. And uh, if so that that's happens, a real acting job for uh, Natalie Portman. <clears throat> it's not Natalie to, Portman, to it's Kristen some... Stewart. <laughs> <clears throat> but once you overcome... Oh, no, no, no. Once you overcome your inhibitors, you then are taken off to be reprogrammed. Uh, if okay. they can find you. Mm. Nicholas Holt suddenly develops stage one and he reports himself because this is what people do. He doesn't mm. think any it's better It's a bit Logan's Run-ish then as well. Then. It's very much Logan's Run. Mm. I'll get, I'm going to get to that. <clears throat> it is Logan's Run meets DHX, without a shadow of a doubt. It's not remotely original. But i tell you what it is. It is played, unlike... Because, I mean, there are so many films these days that are influenced by Logan's Run, THX, and 
mostly they try and do a spin on it. Mm. Well, with equals, they're not doing a spin on it. They're just updating it mm. to make it in 2015, 2016, where, like with classic Doctor Who and modern Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who doesn't really engage emotionally. Modern Doctor Who does. Logan's Run, for all that it's an adventure story with love content, it doesn't engage emotionally. And THX, for all that it's, again, a love story, again, it doesn't really engage emotionally. No. It's a very clinical mm. film. Very clinical. Equals takes Logan's Run, takes THX, and gives it an emotional core. And it really, really works. Mm. Or at least I thought it did. I mm. thought it was a really, really good film. I mean, I couldn't say it was an absolute classic because it is so influenced by these other things. But it is progression. Yeah. It takes it on. But instead of taking it on by messing around with the idea, doing something meta with the idea, it just takes exactly the same idea and says, right, how would that work in an era in which we want to watch films where we're emotionally engaged? And it emotionally engages... I've got to say as well, the very last shot in the very last scene is, well, it's one of those endings where, and I'll tell you what, I've said this a few times recently, it's one of those endings where as the credits come up, you'll go, what the hell? But then five minutes later, you'll go, yeah, you could have ended it in a more perfect way. Mm. Ah, it was fantastic, actually. I really enjoyed it. <clears throat> so that would be my one recommendation. Mm. Let's just say good. very briefly, um, I was very lucky that in a local library, uh, Mark Clapham, uh, who listens to this, um, did a, uh, a film club, or he presented a film at the film club, and he presented um, Alex Cox's Bill the Intergalactic Hero. Have you heard of that? Um, the I'm Robert Heinlein sure. novel. Oh, okay. Right? <clears throat> right. oh, somebody's shouting know. if that author's wrong. Or is it Ray Bruff? No, it's Heinlein. I'm sure it is. Anyway. Get who who wrote Stanley Still Rat? Isaac Asimov. Was it? Yeah, it wasn't. Stainless Steel Rat, isn't it? <clears throat> oh, anyway. No, I'm probably... It's a film that Alex Cox now. desperately wanted to make and couldn't get backing for, so what mm. he did was he turned it into a crowdfunding it's thing. It's not um, and Harry... What's his face? Oh, yeah, sorry, Harry Harrison. You're Harry right. Harry Harrison. Absolutely right. Yes. Yes, that's the name that wouldn't come out. Alex Cox wanted to make the film of this book and couldn't get backing and decided... Don't tell me Mick Jagger stepped in. No. Thank no. God for that. Alex Cox treated, then went to a, a film college and did it as a course using students to make this film on no budget whatsoever and they did a bit of crowdfunding. So the whole thing's in black and white and it's all done with model shots and real homespun CGI and uh, it's all filmed on campus. Mm-hmm. So it's a real student film. But it's amazing how watchable it is. Yeah. And I think the whole thing's on Vimeo. Oh, or yeah. Vimeo, however yeah. you say Vimeo. Vimeo. Vimeo with an N. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. So, so that's, there's another recommendation. Say, well, it's recommended <coughs> to watch it just out of curiosity. I mean, you may not get through it, but I, I started getting things from it which I didn't kind of expect because the whole thing was in black and white and it made the whole thing quite. Um, I, I, it's hard to describe really, but yeah, it's well worth. It's odd and it's funny at times for for completely wrong reasons, but at the same time, it's um, you got to think right. everyone's going around in spacesuits the whole time. The, the main character's in a spacesuit the whole time. It's steamed up the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Before we wrap it up, very quickly, if I can ask Simon, um, seeing as you're Mr. Marvel, mm. have you had the opportunity to watch any of Luke Cage yet on Netflix? I haven't yet, no. Ooh. I've just finished Stranger Things. Okay. 
which is awesome. Mm. Should yeah, we have five minutes on the news? Seeing as it's been six weeks, this is really old news now. But should we yes. have five minutes on the news? Go on, Go on then. Well, Power of the Daleks is being animated. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about that, have we? No, and I mean, we're not really going to have a chance to what properly. What do we do that because... for, then? <clears throat> <laughs> well, I mean... Now, I'm secretly hoping that sort of clip that got released as like a little teaser, or yeah, was it deliberately released? I don't know. Um, no, is, it wasn't. It's the only bit they've had to animate because they managed to find the, uh, the 16 mil films before they had to do any more. No, it wasn't deliberately released. Absolutely nailed on guaranteed. Oh. <clears throat> Hmm. And they had to bring the announcement forward as well because uh, of the um, leak. Uh, they weren't planning to announce it until much nearer the time. I think it probably still wouldn't be announced now. Because they discovered with the enemy of the world and web of fear that if you announce something as it's available, hmm. people are much more likely to stick their hands in their pockets. Especially if you're asking people to double dip. <clears throat> yeah. And the thing about The Power of the Daleks is because it goes out first of all on the BBC store and then the DVDs yeah. two weeks after that. In terms of the DVD range, though, it's, it's, it looks like a, a decent number of people are pre-ordering if you look at the likes of Amazon. The thing about the DVDs is they'll never pay for the animation, mm. not the kind of figures we're talking about. If it hadn't been for the fact that... Well, the BBC America stumped up a lot of the cash, didn't they? Yeah, but I... Yes, and the fact that it's going to be broadcast on mm. BBC America is a huge influence on whether there would be any more. But I think the main um, influence on it getting made was as a shop window for the BBC store. Mm. Mm. But they're not going to do that every year. People are saying, oh, if this is really successful, they'll do it again next year. Only if it pays for itself. If it pays for itself, they'd do it again next year. You know, if it makes a profit. Mm. But it's not expected Even to then, make a profit, I don't think. Am I, I think... wrong in thinking <clears throat> that BBC Store is only available in the UK? You can't, if you're living in the States or wherever, you can't. Yeah, it would be on iTunes, I think. Right, okay. After 10 days, I think right. it goes to okay. iTunes. Okay. And that's when people will be able mm-hmm. to buy abroad. Mm. But I don't, think, I don't think it's expected to make a profit, given how expensive it would have been to make. Mm. So, uh, well, the way these things work is you have to sign up for BBC Store and the sign-ups for the BBC Store, I can't say this for a fact, I believe the sign-ups for the BBC Store haven't been as widespread as the BBC were hoping. Hmm. So you put something like Power of the Daleks out, you get a lot more people sign up. What happens then is that because they're already signed up, further on down the line, they buy more things. It's a lost leader. So essentially it's a lost leader to get yeah. people to sign up for the BBC store and the DVD is a way of making as much of that money back mm-hmm. as possible. Okay. Mm. So I don't think it's expected to turn a profit. And they're not going to do that every year. They're not going to every year say, let's throw some money away animating Doctor Who unless it does make a profit. Mm. So if it does make a profit, who knows, Evil of the Daleks we might get next year. But I... At this point, I genuinely, genuinely can't see there being any more. No, <clears throat> it's a shame. It's interesting. There seems to be general steering. I don't know if it's just because that's where the trails are coming from, but we've got the trails for class, haven't we? And sorry, class, and <laughs> uh, and the Christmas Doctor Who, mm. um, all there with the BBC America banner. So, is there a general steering towards BBC America? Puts a lot of money into mm. these things more than BBC in. Great Britain does, I believe. In fact, 
I don't know quite what the balance of funding is, but it, it sounds like something like, I don't know, this is just me going off the top of my head, but it sounds like the BBC pays for about a quarter of Doctor Who's budget, and BBC America and BBC Worldwide split the rest of it between them. Because mm. mm. BBC Worldwide make a lot of the DVDs and the foreign sales rights, crucially, and BBC America, obviously, off the subscription fees in North America. Mm. Mm. So... <clears throat> The money that's coming in, and this is the BBC actually availing itself of its own opportunities. I was going to say it's something it wasn't able to do before. Not only that, it's a with the political climate at the moment, with the government wanting to really screw down the BBC and control what it does and how it spends its money. It's a, another way of being able to to get it funded. Mm. Um, but it's not that outside, it's, of yeah. It. Is Doctor Who's now paying for itself? Yeah, Doctor Who, The money that Doctor yeah. Who made always went back into the general pot, mm-hmm. and it is it is specified in the rules that govern the way the BBC works that that general part has to be a general part and can't. Um, no program can um, benefit from that part more than any other because of how well they do. But by BBC Worldwide, BBC America being basically independent bodies of the main body of the BBC, mm. they're able to make Doctor Who actually pay for itself now in the way, you know, you would expect something to do in the wider world. Yeah. Mm. So the, it's the BBC moving with the times. Mm-hmm. And it's good to see because it ensures longevity for Doctor Who so long as it does continue to pay for itself. mm, mm. Whereas if it was down to the pot, as it were, Doctor Who would be more at risk. Mm-hmm. And this is why they've been able to put a five-year plan down for Doctor Who. Yeah, but Another going on to the be... subject of Doctor Who being made independently, it couldn't go to Netflix because there are too many rights issues involved. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. It is being made independently because mm-hmm. BBC America is part-owned, possibly majority-owned by AMC. Yeah. So it's basically Doctor Who is now being made by the same people who make Game of Walking Thrones, Dead. Walking Dead. Mm. So there you go. Doctor yeah. Who is made by the same company that makes The Walking Dead. Well, I never. Mm. Yeah, you see, Simon. Yeah, as you're talking about something that might possibly happen, it has. It has. And in another piece of new old news, which will be old news by the time this goes out, uh, Stephen Moffat dropping a little hint about a classic series writer. Writing for the next series of Doctor Who, Ronan Monroe. Mm-hmm. That's been confirmed. Well, I don't think it's been confirmed as such, but Sarah Dollard, who apparently had been championing championing Ronan Monroe, was cock a hoop after he made the disclosure mm. on Twitter. And so that suggests it's Rona Monroe. And the fact that Rona Monroe had apparently already been asked but hadn't been able to, okay. so now is able to in the same way as... Um, who wrote The Woman Who Lived last year? Um, oh, God, name completely escaped oh. me. Anyway, <laughs> The Woman Who Wrote... The Woman Who Lived had been asked several times before and hadn't been able to, and finally mm. they managed to... Nail her down. Mm. It sounds like that's just what's happened with Rona Monroe okay. now. It's not going to be Terence Dix. Terence Dix is like 90. He's not going to be writing screenplays at the oh, age of 90. Bless. That would have been great. 
It may have I'm been not great. saying that Ronan and Rowe won't be. But. The thing about Doctor Who is it's so high profile. Mm. They are not going to get somebody to write for it who doesn't have recent television experience, basically. Mm. Or, you know, or if they do, it will be somebody who is close enough. Mm-hmm. So you could just about imagine somebody like, well, the names I brought up were Ben Aronovich. Yeah. He's very successful with Rivers of London, mm-hmm. which they also write as graphic novels. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So he has the experience of both the prose and the script form in a very successful way. <clears throat> you know, that sort of thing. You know, actually, Matthew Jacobs liked my status on Facebook about it. And come to think of it, he still writes and makes movies in Hollywood. Mm. Only low-budget independent ones, but he's still doing it, writing movies in Hollywood. He'd be somebody to get back on Doctor Who. Mm. Find out what he would do without all those influences on the TV movie that were going on, that were make you know, pulling his screenplay this way and that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the other big bit of news is they've said what the Christmas special is going to be called, and they've yes. released a picture, which is... The return of Doctor Mysterio. Mysterio, yeah, and obviously the reason it's called Doctor Mysterio is um, it's a reference to Ian McCulloch's second solo album. The reason it's called Doctor Mysterio is because that's what Doctor Who is called in Mexico and Spain oh, and places. Okay. So this is Stephen Moffat being a bit meta, mm. having a little in joke for the. So it's Doctor Who in Spanish. It's set in New York. There's a superhero yeah. in it. Bridging between Mexico and America, yeah. Sorry? As opposed to putting a wall between America and Mexico. Well, uh, yeah, I don't, because it's named after a <laughs> subtitle that they put on a television series. <laughs> well, back. why not? Why not? <clears throat> well, could this be your perfect storm, Simon? In, in Spider-Man. Sorry? Could this be your perfect storm, Doctor Who meets Superhero? Or, or will your expectations be so high that it can only fail? No, I don't. I don't. It depends how it's played, but I mean, I've heard nothing but good reports of the guy who's playing the superhero. So mm. it depends how it's played, and it depends. Obviously, it depends on how he's operating within the story. Mm. You know, it's not another like Santa Claus in the situation. Well, we don't really know anything about it. No. It? <clears throat> You'd have to assume it being Doctor Who that he's some kind of alien or something, or he's been affected in some way. It does feel nice because it's. But that's kind of what happens in superhero things anyway. Yeah, it's not been, I don't suppose in the grand scheme of things, it's been that long compared to what we've had before. But um, it's nice just now. We've got class coming up soon uh, with Peter Capaldi in the first episode. And then the Christmas special finally starting to get a fix of Doctor Who after a bit of a break. Mm. And then it doesn't seem like too much longer now to wait until the next series comes up. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting hearing um, Peter Capaldi apparently saying he'd like a story where the Doctor wakes up and he's Doctor Who in a TV series. Okay. Another. I think which that's is a an bit idea too I metatextual, <laughs> even for. I know, I'd had that been, idea, I thought. Oh, it's been done, Simon, in comic strips yeah, and stuff say, over the years. Wasn't that Paul? Paul Cornell. Yeah. Oh, was it? Yeah. Okay. But I mean, it's been done many, many, many times in various mm. different ways. <clears throat> Sylvester McCoy did it in an episode of Doctors basically sorry Sylvester McCoy did it in an episode of Doctors really? on a lunchtime on a Tuesday really yeah <laughs> about four years ago maybe yeah Um, the thing that struck me about it is Russell T Davis 
all of his Christmas specials basically were inspired by movies, big movies that are on at Christmas that aren't especially Christmas themed, mm. that he put Christmas trees in. So the Christmas invasion is Independence Day, the runaway bride is bringing up baby, uh, Voyage of the Damned is the Poseidon Adventure. He never got around to doing The Great Escape, did he? No, my... Right, if I might be allowed to finish. Mm. So Russell T. Davis is doing <laughs> movies. He's back on form, isn't he? Bloody hell. Russell T. Davis is doing movies. A bit like, actually, Hinchcliffe and Holmes were doing movies. And then <clears throat> Stephen Moffat comes along, and his Christmas specials have, by and large, been more literary, in the yeah. same way as Graham Williams' mm. were. But he, but whereas Russell T. Davis was doing big adventure movies, yeah. Stephen Moffat was doing actual Christmas stories mm. and classic Christmas stories for children. So Lion, the Witch in the Wardrobe is not a brilliant example, but A mm. Christmas Carol was a great example. Oh, yeah. And his other specials, too, have been influenced by the sort of literary tropes of Christmas time. And then you get to... This one, where all of a sudden it's a superhero thing, it's almost like he's bettering Russell T. Davis at his own game. Because while Russell T. Davis were doing the family staples of Christmas, movies that had been around for a long time and would just show up every year or every other year, Stephen Moffat's actually doing the kind of movies that are big and successful now. Mm. Did he... Am I right in thinking that they asked him to stay on for one more series before this uh, Christmas special was commissioned? So was he expecting to write this one as his last story, or was the, no, the end of the last No, The River Song would have been his last story. Yeah. So do you think that's another reason for the change in style? style? No, I don't think so. I think it's just literally... I think that the next series altogether is going to be like this. Mm. I think he said, <clears throat> I think he's, I think he went as far as he wanted to go with what he was doing with that storyline. And has said, let's have fun with this extra year. Mm. And I think, I, th- and I think that's why we've got, um, Pearl Mackie as Bill, because mm. she's a character that almost seems designed to bring out Peter Capaldi's more, for want of a better word, wacky side. Playful. And then Nardol, is back, mm. of course, for, I don't know, it looks to me like three episodes and then maybe more mm. further down the line. Mm. I think it might just be three episodes or something. But he's certainly going to be back in at least three episodes. And again, it's designed to bring out a more playful side. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a little bit of that first series with Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. Okay. Because they were so opposite. I'm like Tennant and Piper who were so the same. Mm. But Eccleston and Piper were so opposite that they both brought out things in the other one that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the comedy that Christopher mm. Eccleston couldn't do. I'm talking about other aspects to Christopher Eccleston as an actor that you wouldn't he see himself. Him. He would have done it differently. Mm. Yeah. You know, but like... other aspects of Christopher Eccleston as an actor that he wouldn't have played if it hadn't been opposite Billy Piper. Mm. And I think that's what this year's designed to do for Peter Capaldi. And as far as the year of Doctor Who's concerned, I think this is going to be more of a fun. Yeah, lighter, blight the cobwebs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. <clears throat> That's what it looks like to me. Prepared to be proven wrong, but the Christmas special doesn't seem to be proved, doesn't seem designed to prove you wrong on that, does it? Aren't they sometimes, though, a bit of a separate entity tone wise from what's been going on? 
well, as a rule. Yes and no. Look at last Christmas. That wasn't mm-hmm. all that different tonally from Series 8. Mm. Um, Husbands of River Song was, but then yeah. that was a reaction to and continuation of the themes of Series mm. 9. Mm. And Moffat's Christmas specials, The Snowman and Christmas Carol, tonally they're of a piece with what's going on around them. Mm. Russell T. Davis did the light-hearted Christmas specials, and that's what people got used to, but Stephen Moffat's Christmas specials have been much more in keeping than mm. Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Mm. So no, I think I think this I think Husbands of River Song was maybe an indication that this would happen, and the return of Doctor Mysterio is the actual signal change. I don't know though; it remains to be seen. We'll see. It'll right, be fun finding out. Well, we've now talked for an hour and a half, so I'm not going to put both those panels on. We'll have one of those two panels with Eric Sayward. <clears throat> we will have the one with. Sophie Aldred, Eric Sayward, and Matthew Dale. And that will be coming up now. And then the other one will turn up as an Easter egg at some point in the future, along with the others. Um, <clears throat> so I guess until next week, where if all goes to plan, we'll be talking about class. Uh, I was JR. I was Simon. And I was Mark. And I did that in the wrong order as well, didn't I? <laughs> well, we'll speak again soon. So are you just all going to start pressing buttons and yeah. <laughs> things go around and we talk? Is that right? Is everybody recording? Let me double check again. Are you on? Testing one, two, three. Okay, so we just go along the line and introduce ourselves. So I'm Nick, I'm a podcaster, I'm from the uh, podcast investor. Uh, with me we've got... Sorry, the podcast. The podcast. Yeah. That sounds like a good one. Yeah, it, it, it came from um, a Doctor Who group in the pub, is it? Which is Very sensible. The podcast. A podcast. A podcast. Like so it. next me I've got... I'm Sophie Aldred, and amongst other things, um, I guess I'm principally known for playing Ace in Doctor Who. Hi, I'm Matthew Dell, and I played Little John, the first Little John in Robots of Sherwood in Doctor Who. And at the end we have... My name's Eric Saywood and um, I'm a writer and I was also script editor um, on Doctor Who back in the 80s. There I was young and beautiful. (laughs) And you still are. Oh, you sweetness. Sweetness. (laughs) Okay, so a generic question for um, all of you is um, how how did you get involved with um, Doctor Who? Um, whoever, 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 whoever. I want to hear Eric first. Oh, mine's very boring. I was working in radio, and then script editor of, of uh, Doctor Who, Christopher Bidme, was calling around for uh, for writers on Who, and he um, contacted uh, had a drama in radio. and said, "Can you can you recommend anybody?" And I was one of uh, a number that. Uh, sort of pointed at and he approached me and asked me whether I'd be interested and I said yes and he said well if you'd care to submit a storyline um, we can take it from there and well, so we did so six years later I was leaving Doctor Who I was lucky 
in a way. Um, I, um, I was with my acting agency and they contacted me and um, it was all hush-hush on it, telling me what um, I was going to be doing. They said I was going to um, be in Doctor Who and I said, fantastic, so I said yes to it, not knowing what to do and I actually found out literally last minute what I was doing and I was so impressed. Um, I've been with my acting agency for about over 20 years and finally to get me something really good, which was Doctor Who. <laughs> um. Sophie? Yeah, well, I was doing theatre um, in the back row of the chorus in Fiddler on the Roof up in Manchester um, at the Opera House with Topol, who did the original Tevye in the film. And my agent put me up for three episodes of Doctor Who. Um, and I came down to London and did a, um, uh, an audition and then came down a couple of weeks later for a recall. And initially, it was for three episodes. I'd never even been in a TV studio before. Um, didn't even have a screen test. And, um, and then found out I got the job. But not only that, uh, for the three episodes, it was actually, uh, would I be interested in taking over the role as Doctor Who's assistant? Because um, Bonnie Langford was thinking of leaving. So it was just like an unbelievable story, really. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was amazing for me. Yeah. So um, had all of you um, seen Doctor Who before you appeared in it? Yeah, I grew up watching Doctor Who. My Doctor was John Pertwee. I think I must have been. Well, I was around at the time of Patrick Troughton, but I don't think we had a TV uh, at the time because you didn't in those days, did you? It wasn't. It wasn't sort of like. You, everyone watches this, everyone. Um, so, yeah, the first one I really remember is John Pertwee. Um, and I loved it. And I used to make my brother watch it uh, on the sofa while I looked at it, the scary bits through a crack in the door, uh, so that I could shut the door if I, if I needed to. Um, and, yeah, and then I kind of, I watched it. I remember John Pertwee re-materialising into Tom Baker and it was my mum who informed me of that uh, from the paper on a car journey. I was absolutely outraged. I thought, how dare they change the Doctor? Plus ça change. I mean, everybody thinks that, don't they? Now, even now, the kids get really heartbroken when the Doctor regenerates. Um, and uh, I thought, well, John Pertwee is the Doctor. This guy, Tom Baker, he's going to be rubbish which shows how much I knew um, so I watched Tom and um, probably I think I watched a bit of Peter um, and then went away to university I wasn't a die-hard fan as I now know die-hard fans to be but I definitely watched it as part of my childhood and very fond of it um, so yes I was away at university for most of Peter's and all of Colin's um, so I was delighted to be contacted and asked to audition. My um, doctor, and it's actually, you know, actually an honour to actually be here, is Sylvester McCoy. Aww. And of course, I mean, it's a nice honour to um, be with Sophie as Ace. Oh, that's nice. So um, he, um, I grew up with um, him as my, uh, my doctor. He actually came to see me in my first proper play. I did um, a kind of play called the community play it's uh based in a local area Dorchester where I'm but um born and bred um and basically about history of um the area and he was actually the first main big actor to actually come and see me um perform because he knew the director 
But when I was introduced to him, I had that really awful feeling. You know when you completely blank someone, you absolutely had no idea who it was? I was gutted, actually. Um, I met him, and I was introduced to him. It was just after I'd met him, when he'd gone, I then realised who he was. And I was oh. like, oh, no. But I've managed to meet him since and got autographs and photos. But as I say, my assistant was actually would be you, um, oh. Sophie. And so I'm actually really pleased to be on a podcast with you. And Eric. As well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, yeah, so he's my doctor, and I've gr- uh, grown up with him, and that's where I started. And uh, as I say, my next doctor now is Big Faldi. So, but my number one com- um, doctor will be Sylvester, and I hope to someday do a convention with him, um, as well as maybe Sophie as well at the same time. Mm, lovely. So, had, had you seen the show before you um, took over the script? Uh, yes, I had, but uh, not for a very long time. When I was asked to write the visitation, I don't think I'd seen an episode of Doctor Who for about ten years. Uh, hence, why it's, uh, the story itself is uh, reflects another period rather than um, uh, what was currently being done on Doctor Who. Yeah, I mean, when you came in as script editor, did you have a idea of the direction you wanted to take the series in? Or? Well, eventually, I mean, when I, I, I. Uh, took over script editor, there was very little material for that season. It, uh, P, uh, bit, um, what his name? Chris Bidmead. Chris Bidmead, sorry about that. Chris Bidmead had left in November and uh, with no, nothing in, in, in the pot for, for the next season. And uh, Anthony Root had taken over. He was just doing a three-month period. And um, he hadn't actually got things underway. And then I came in around about April and uh, did the best I could. It was a matter of trying to keep up with things rather than plan- having great plans. After I'd settled down, of course, then I'm, I'm looking around thinking, where can we take this show? Because it, it, it was still following um, Tom in, in, uh, in the way that uh, it had been presented by him. And I thought it was, and we had Peter coming in. And I thought we really got to sort of shift this over. So we had a young, younger doctor. We could make him more of an action man. Uh, there was a lot going on in the cinema um, that was uh, full of action, things like Star Wars and so on. We, we didn't attempt to emulate them, but of course, the budgets made it impossible. But you've got to keep an eye on what's happening, otherwise you just very quickly look incredibly old-fashioned. So that was the attempt to, to pull it into a, a more a greater adult audience, hence what we finally did I hope yeah so Sophie when you came in as ace did you have any say into the character or was it kind of you were told this is what the characters are this is how you've got to play it or did it kind of evolve Mm. it was a bit of both really because um, I got the script for Dragonfire um, and really loved the character as written on the page. I mean, uh, Ian Briggs had just done the most fantastic job of creating a very realistic character anyway. Um, and um, I ca- I, I'd come from the world of community theatre, children's theatre, where, uh, where and the kind of person I, I was, I, where I did have a lot of input. So I just sort of assumed that that's what you did in TV as well. Um, and Sylvester was very um, into the idea of having this different kind of relationship with a companion 
um, partly to help him with his lines because he uh, he he realised very early on that if he had like um, you know what's this a you know if he was saying um, oh well this is a so and so I would say what's happening what's the where are we going what are we doing where he would have to say everything he would have to have all the lines whereas if he turned into a sort of mentor teacher type doctor then he could say to me well, what do you think this is, Ace? And I would have to come up with all the gobbledygook that he didn't then have to learn. So it was all very clever ploy. Um, anyway, but Andrew Cartmel, the script editor, was really kind of keen on the character of Ace. And, um, and he really wanted that development of her character um, and the relationship between her and the Doctor to be kind of very um, realistic. And, um, yeah, so I was very lucky in that there wasn't really much to ever interfere with with the characterization as written because the writers that Andrew had uh, had got really took on the character and produced great dialogue and uh, there wouldn't have been anything that I wouldn't have wanted to say or do. Or, I mean, I certainly had a, a big say in my costume um, again, because I thought, kind of, well, that's what you do. Um, well, actually, Andrew asked me. He said, uh, when I went to the read-through, I was wearing a pair of Doc Martin boots, um, stripy tights or socks, I think, um, some cut-off army shorts and a stripy T-shirt. And he said, that's a really good look, he said. Um, do you think that would be good for Ace? And I said... Yeah, and because he'd said that to me, I kind of then went and researched what... Because I was 24 at the time, playing 16. So I actually went and looked at what 16-year-olds were wearing in the clubs in London. And they had they uh, the Face magazine was full of these girls wearing those puffy jackets with badges and safety pins and um, baseball caps. <clears throat> Couldn't wear a cap because it's a nightmare for lighting if you wear a hat on... Um, you know, like a baseball cap wouldn't have worked. Could have worn it backwards, I suppose, but I'm glad I didn't. Um, and those, do you remember at that time, the Beastie Boys were all the rage and they had these necklaces that they wore, big chains with VW badges that they'd nicked off cars. Um, well, we thought we'd better not do that because it might be encouraging the youth to nick VW badges and so on. But that was the kind of look. Um, and I went and showed the costume designer these pictures and what about this, what about that and we went shopping together and had a great time and found all this stuff that I was very happy with Janet is so cross about that <laughs> she doesn't like that at all that I was able to have such a big input into my costume I think she, she was in high heels everywhere wasn't yeah. she? yeah, yeah. Mm. and very short skirt <laughs> but it was a product of its time you know, because 1987 was a very different time. It, uh, even in those sh few years, things had ch things were changing for women, um, thank goodness, and young women on TV. And although there wasn't really... EastEnders had just started. Um, I think Susan Tully was probably the only other young female feisty character on TV at the time. Um, so I'm, I'm so proud of the character. Yeah, I really am. Sorry, that was a very long answer. <laughs> no worries, filling the time. <laughs> <laughs> now, of course, you worked on uh, Robots of Sherwood, so um, was it a kind of dream job, was it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
easy answer. <laughs> um, for costume-wise, they um, fitted me with what I'm roughly wearing. Um, I've kind of just about got to what a level I can um, do in the costume. Okay, I've just been buying myself a bow and arrow recently, um, this week, because I've wanted to make the costume even more realistic. Um, okay, I didn't get to choose. What they did is they um, went to the wardrobe and they just picked random clothes saying, that'd be good, that'd be good. So I basically put it all on and, yeah, basically it was like completely like hot and like, oh, it's amazing costume. Really hot all the time. I don't know about yours because I've seen it with your leather jacket mm. on warm days, which you would have been really hot on there. Mm. Um, yeah, it wasn't actually leather. People make that mistake because it does look like leather on camera, but it was one of those flight jackets. So it was ideal because I had a pocket inside and I could put a hot water bottle in there. <laughs> so I was invariably <laughs> freezing. Um, and then when it got too hot, I could just nonchalantly be swinging it over my oh. shoulder. Yeah, so I was lucky. No, yeah, that it, sounds... yeah, it was kind of all kind of all cotton, like really wool material. So it was really kind of itching on the whole body. But you had to Ooh. like for the whole, whole um, the eight days of filming in the kind of the hot wool and with warm weather. Well, I'll put you away. It was in Wales, it was dry, it was sunny. Blimey. All week. Unusual. <laughs> Very. But uh, when you're in costume, it was hot. But at least the shoes were comfortable. So, um, kind of general question for everyone. Um, I'll start with Erica at the end. Is there anything that you would have liked to have done on Doctor Who but didn't get to do? Well, if you're talking about companions, I would have liked... Um, the female companion to be a little bit tougher, a little bit more real, a little bit more contributing, a little bit more um, with the character of Teague and, and Nyssa. They they became almost redundant. It was very difficult to, to get got more and more difficult to fit them in round stories. When Teague spent most of her time moaning, and Nyssa looking aloof and whatever, and uh, and we had so many of them. There was Turlo, so three of them at one stage. Uh, with the exception of Turlo, um, he really couldn't contribute massively. Because when you're out in in deep space, driving around in a TARDIS, and these are two, well, Nissa wasn't, but Tegan is from Earth, 1980 Earth. You think, what what can she contribute? She, every time she arrives somewhere, she has to ask, Am I, it makes it sound, well, boring, to, 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 to the least. But I would have liked fewer companions, and... Um, we're going to have a female one, certainly a much tougher, more positive uh, contribution. Mm. So I, I probably would have chosen someone from deep space where she would have had the sort of knowledge that could uh, compete, because you did with Sylvester, mm. compete with the Doctor. Is there anywhere you would have liked to have taken Ace where you didn't get to go on screen? Or? Well, the, the only thing I can think of is when I auditioned for the role, my agent said, uh, oh yeah, they want to see you because they want somebody who looks younger than they really are, which I had the good fortune to, to, to look, and they want somebody who can ride a motorbike. And I learnt to ride a motorbike um, when I left university just because of London traffic and, and because I was a tomboy and I'd always quite fancied a motorbike. Um, and so my agents, with my publicity photo, she put on the back, has own leathers, which to this day, I'm convinced, was the reason why Chris Clough uh, saw me for the role. Um, because, I'll tell you why, 
because we had a lovely audition. He's such a nice guy. Did you ever meet Chris no. Clifton? What a lovely guy. He now um, he produced um, he's executive producer of The Missing. You know that with um, mm. Jimmy Nesbitt. And, um, <coughs> anyway, really, really great guy. We had a lovely audition. I had such a laugh. And then when I was called for a recall. It was to see the producer, John Nathan Turner. But Chris kind of introduced me, um, uh, almost like his protege, you know. And the way he introduced me was, he said, this is Sophie Aldred, Um, she has her own leathers. (laughs) Uh, As though though my leathers were going to actually get me the part. Anyway, so here we go. I think, oh, well, they've cast me because I look 16, I'm 24 and I'm going to ride a motorbike. Now, what I didn't realise is that they were also cross-casting for Delta and the Bannermen at the time. And um, they chose Sarah Griffiths, who doesn't ride a motorbike, to, mar- to ride the motorbike. <laughs> Meanwhile, they chose me to play Ace, which was actually the right way around. I was much more suitable for that part. Did I ever get to ride a motorbike? Oh. <laughs> I got on a motorbike in survival, just about to ride away, and Sylvester pulls me off, gets on it himself. Sylvester, who's never ridden a motorbike in his life, sets off hell for leather over the, over the horizon and suddenly thinks to himself, hang on a minute, how do you stop these things? <laughs> Nobody had actually realised that he couldn't ride a motorbike because it just seems the kind of thing that Sylvester would be able to do. So off he roared and he had to actually <coughs> tip himself off the bike to stop because he didn't realise... <coughs> you just pull the brakes. <coughs> so there you go. Yeah. Um, <coughs> would you like to return to the series? <coughs> oh, thanks. I'll I'll step away for a minute. <coughs> so would you like to re- return to the series with maybe another character? Or I would love to um, return to the series as a companion. Oh, that, that would that'd be good. good. <laughs> um, and um, it w- one thing that would be interesting, it would be quite nice, is if, let's say, the doctor is regenerated into a female to be the assistant of the doctor. <laughs> that could be quite Con- fun. Controversial, very yeah. <laughs> well, they, they've moved, well, they moved um, the master into the mistress, yeah. so they can change the doctor to the doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know it's a very controversial subject online amongst Doctor Who fans. Yeah. But no, it'd be nice to be assistant, because um, that would be quite cool, because then I get to do what I guess to do and travel around. And run up and down corridors. Yes. Yeah. Now, this is a podcast interview, so have the podcasters got any questions they want to ask? A question for Eric. Um, the, in the visitation, the aliens... Um, might not have been realised as well as they could have been. Were you happy with them? Um, no, not really. I mean, it, uh, the misery cut speaks again. Uh, <laughs> no, I, the, the costume... I mean, they were trying, and uh, the visual effects guys had, had um, got hold of some of these little tiny um, motors that now are everywhere. And they they'd built them into the mask of the pteroleptal so that he could have some, some movement. But it was... Uh, there's a story as to why the actor inside the costume couldn't have his voice changed. And I learned that it said because his mother wouldn't recognise him. I, <laughs> I, and I found this really rather extraordinary. This is why you're using someone because his mother. 
Anyway, um, so no, it, it would, and the store, the, the the costume was very very restrictive. So I can't. I'm trying to remember the actor's name. Apologies to actors. I think he um, ended up running the Queen Vic, so his mum will have seen him at some point. Oh right, right. Um, <coughs> it's basically a two-part question because I love the alien race themselves, and I was just thinking if you'd never been approached or approached Big Finish to say, can we have them on this? It's a lot cheaper without the makeup. <laughs> Uh, big finish. Well, I, they've never approached me to do anything, so. Uh, well, no, with Nikki somewhere in the building. Hello, Nikki. Where are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, because I think as a race, they could they could really have legs, literally. Yes. On real on audio. They 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 could. I always thought. Yes, I agree. They would. It would. It would have made them more interesting. I mean, just being able to move around makes an act more interesting. But they couldn't. No, you you seem to have a whole world building thing with them rather than just have them as. Villains of the week. Mm. They they had a they had a society and uh, mm. they they built beautiful things like the the androids and mm. things like that and had a genetics background, which <coughs> sounded so they'd had more thought put into them than a lot of other creatures. Well, it's just sort of the backstory really. It's I mean they'd come from Raga, a place called Raga, <laughs> where they'd been in prison. They'd been working in the, the yeah. mines there, which had damaged uh, the Terraleptor's face. They they reacted badly to that. Yes, that that is true. There is a, a, a sort of history to. Them. Just seeing because Visitation was one of my, well, obviously that was the book that was chosen to be the making of Doctor Who, which, which for a lot of us was one of the books that we always carried around with. <coughs> right. Because in the early years of fandom, there wasn't a lot of stuff that we had access to, and mm. the Visitation was the story that had been chosen to concentrate yeah. in that, and we all sort of, that was what we all knew most about right. because we'd read that and carried it around with us. I, I think mind. that that was not nothing particularly special for the visitation because it just happened to be the story in production when right. when the, the author approached John. Anyone else want to ask any questions? Uh, Tim? Oh, how kind. Uh, yes, yeah, podcast. Um, <clears throat> well, Strangeness in Space is um, a project I've been involved with for about a year and a half um, with some uh, very old friends of mine from university, in fact, <coughs> Trev and Simon, who swing their pants and don't do duvets. Um, <clears throat> and basically, um, uh, another friend of ours, Claire, who we were at university with, is an executive producer. Um, on podcasts and radio, radio and so on and she suggested that we all work together so <coughs> Trev and Simon wrote this script for us um, which I took, just took one look at and thought this is great it made me laugh um, I know I've got a slightly strange sense of humour but um, and it's just been amazing we've been so pleased with it we've done four episodes so far we crowdfunded the first two, um, reached our goal within, I think, two weeks, um, which was amazing. And people have been so generous and very, uh, very supportive of it. Yeah, including people like Jenny. Yeah, she's been amazing. Um, and um, so we've done two more episodes. Uh, we're just beginning the fifth and the sixth. And basically, <clears throat> it's a story. I play a character called Sophie, funnily enough. <laughs> Trev and Simon play Trev and Simon. Um, I am the manageress of a gift shop in a space centre, not unlike uh, this space centre in Leicester, um, who inadvertently gets blasted off into space in a test rocket with um, Trev and Simon, who 
belong to an 80s pop synth duo called Pink Custard, uh, which is loosely based on Blumange. And it's a kind of, it's a family listening show with their kind of mad humour and me desperately trying to hold it all together. But it's done really well. We reached number six in the iTunes podcast comedy and we were um, in the Guardian a few weeks ago, had a thing about the 50 podcasts that you must listen to and we were in, we were in the top 50. so we're really pleased and the beauty of doing something like that as a podcast is that you have complete control over your material you don't have to hang around waiting to be commissioned and then be cut and told told what to do so we've actually in a way I think it's going to be a future of, of broadcasting the podcast um, you know yourselves I mean it's a it's a very democratic and wonderful medium because if people like you they listen and if they don't they don't um, and um, yeah, we're we're just so pleased with it. But yeah, if you haven't listened to it, you can download it for free either on the website www.strangenessinspace.com or from iTunes as well. So <clears throat> fun for all the family, and it's free. That's a lot of s. <laughs> and you also do songs, well them as well. Didn't you? Yeah, we yeah. There's a song song per episode. A mad song, yeah. I'm actually doing an event in Peterborough in October with Trevor and Simon, oh, so uh, I'm looking forward to that. So. <clears throat> yeah, they're great fun. Um, tiny yeah. question for Sophie you do a lot of stuff for Big Finish um, with Ace, but Ace has now got so much stuff going on. You've got Ace with Hex, you've got Ace in the new <laughs> Gallifrey series, you've got Ace now with Mel again, so you've got old Mel but still fairly young. Is, but then you've got the stuff that's adapted for books. How do you keep track <laughs> of which is you're being and where in the oh, life you are? Because there's alternative universes and all sorts yeah, going on. Yes, it's very funny um, to be given to be given all these different aces to do. I love it because, <clears throat> and what always informs Ace is like with any other script that that you get as an actor, which is the script. That's where you start. It's you know it's these guys who <clears throat> they're writing a, something specific, and it's through your interpretation of, of what they've written and that script. I don't know. I don't really have to think about it because it's all there, written down already. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's it's great script writing. It's good good story writing, and the, also the fact that these guys who write these amazing scripts they know the character of Ace really well um, occasionally there's something that she, I don't think she would have said or you know like a little mistake or something like that but um, on the whole it all comes from the script um, and I haven't got a favourite way of playing Ace either I, I'm equally, Fiesta of the Damned has just come out and I realised actually a while back that people would say oh you know I love so and so um, what about the bit where you and of course if you're recording something over two days an episode over two you forget it very quickly and you're also only reading your own scenes if you're doing a <clears throat> TV performance as we were doing in those days it's so much more memorable because often we are away on location and so I can remember so much more about the stories that I did whereas with Big Finish it's almost like they're in and out so I decided to listen to them because I wanted to be able to talk about them 
And I've just started listening to Fiesta of the Damned. And it's very much, as you say, older Mel, but Ace is still the Ace. That she, she's more developed than she was in the earlier big finishes, but she's yes. still younger than I would say she would be in the Virgin of Life adaptation. Yes. That you get. And so the, it's definitely there in the performances from everyone yeah. as well. But um, I'm halfway through Fiesta today, I was listening to it on the way down. Yes. So don't spoil the end. No, I won't. I think the fascists might win, <laughs> so, win Spain, but I don't know. I'm not might giving it away. <laughs> Yeah, it's remarkably good hearing you and Bonnie together on audio because you only got the one story on TV. What's it like working together in your little booths? Oh, it's great. Uh, well, it was really funny because for the moment I saw Bonnie again, and, and we have seen each other at conventions and stuff like that, it was quite hard to get us out of the green room, stop us talking, and get us into the studio. Um, but once we did, we were right next to each other, so Bonnie's there and I'm here and Sylvester's on my right. And funnily enough, it was Bonnie who was doing most of the laughing. She, uh, just, there was one point where she completely corpsed herself and she was laughing so hard, it was so funny. Sylvester and I were laughing at her, laughing. <laughs> she, she literally couldn't carry on. Yeah, we had such a good time. And I think actually Ken Bentley says in one of the... Um, uh, interviews, you know those interviews that they do after the stories. He said, I don't think he said he'd ever seen. He said he knew actors get on really well together, but he hadn't realised till he saw Bo Bonnie and me chatting away how how well we get on together. And it's so funny because we're not at all like each other. We're we're very different people, but somehow we really get on so well together. Um, right now, obviously, we've talked about Doctor Who and a few other things, but. One of the big roles is Tree Food Tom. Of course. To do, how did David Tennant react to finding out that he was your assistant? Ah, <laughs> yes, exactly. My sidekick, David Tennant. <laughs> it was so funny because, of course, I'd met David before when we did Colditz for Big Finish. And he was a, an unknown then. And in fact, Nick will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he actually asked Nick Briggs... Um, if he could please do a big finish and there's some story about how he could he was going to be a spear carrier at the national or something and or he could do the big finish and he wanted to do the big finish anyway uh, that may all be, have been in my head or in a dream somewhere but um yeah check with nick that one um and uh, so it was really lovely to see him again and um i just love i, I loved working with him because he's just such a professional, brilliant actor. He can just take anything on and do it fantastically. And so playing a little acorn sprite who's mischievous and cheeky was no problem to him. But it was quite dangerous standing next to him because we did it as an ensemble, which was amazing. I love doing animation that way. It's, it's the nicest way to do it. Um, and I, when I do, because I'm producing a different voice for True Fu Tom, and I might not do it because it might, it, uh, I might stop coughing, but I'll, I'll see if I can do it at the end of the story. Um, I, I'm very still and quite tense. I have to do a lot of, sort of you know, work, work because I'm producing a different voice. Whereas David is like, he's so tall anyway, and he's all long and gangly. So he was standing next to me like this, doing his character. And I'm, I'm like this, sort of trying to avoid his long arms like this. 
but it, it was it was great fun to work with him. Really good. Mm. Yes, well, I'm afraid we've got to wrap up now because we've got the next guests in. So, everybody, please put your hands up. in cinema too <laughs> see you soon for some more adventures <laughs> Chewy Fu go <laughs> <laughs>